Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate and entertain, but we also have a more serious purpose. We support the Financial Times Financial Literacy Charity. Check it out on ft.com forward slash F-L-I-C. It's the most disadvantaged in society who get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people from their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. And if you enjoy the podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter. It's a couple of emails a month from me on investing topics I find interesting, other podcasts I enjoy, and occasional book review. Visit our website, behindthebalancesheet.com, and hit the sign up button. And while you're there, you might want to check out our fabulous online investing training school. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio. I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than other platforms I've used. And third, it's features I've never seen in other systems. My favorite one is the ability to go into a 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for Behind the Balance Sheet for more info. And you can even get a two week free trial. Lucy McDonald is the former Chief Investment Officer of Global Equities at Allianz Global Investors, where she worked for almost 20 years and managed £5 billion or $7 billion of assets. She's currently a non-executive director on the JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Trust, as well as taking care of a new puppy. Lucy's got 30 years of experience in financial markets, and she's just the type of guest that we like to have in the podcast. She's got a wealth of experience, she's semi-retired, and she's not afraid to speak out. In this interview, she explains her really unusual route to finance, her approach to running successful portfolios, how to run a team of fund managers and analysts, and how a woman copes in a man's world. I hope you enjoy this episode. 
Thank you. Lucy, hi. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Really nice to have you. Listen, you studied music at Bristol University. It's quite an unusual background for somebody that's been in financial markets. What made you want to come into, into the city? I had no idea about the city um, at, at uh, that age um, until I'd actually started playing the piano in a wine bar when I was a student. And um, it happened to be a wine bar where there were a lot of stockbrokers. And so through talking to some of these stockbrokers, uh, they told me about the city. And I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting. And so when I left, it was big bang time. It was sort of mid 80s. Everybody was headed up towards the city. And so I sort of thought, well, that's worth looking into. And and so I, I went up there. I got a job um, working for the chief economist at Bearings. And that was a very interesting place to be because I had a very good vision into the different parts of the city. So, you know, we were servicing the corporate finance and trading and the fund management. And so I could see you know, the, the culture of each of those sort of activities. And I was really interested by the fund management. And I also felt the culture there was, was sort of more aligned to, you know, where I was coming from. And it did seem a little bit more open slightly more diverse i mean not hugely but but relative to the others it was and so so um i got myself qualified as an analyst so i did that in in the evenings and and then persuaded somebody to give me money to manage and once you do start managing money then it is a bit like maths because you know the the results are there and uh, nobody can really argue with them and so so that's really how i got going so it was pretty random but I have to say at the time, I mean, there was a huge diversity of, of backgrounds, of uh, academic backgrounds of people who, who were working in finance management then. You know, I was working with, with historians and, and people who had studied English, as well as, you know, people who had come through um, from maths and economics. And, and it was a very, very fertile um, economic um, and intellectual uh, debating uh, area. So I found that uh, a very good you know, starting point uh, for, for the, the profession. And of course, Bearings at that time, if I remember, it was a, there were some brilliant people there. I remember yeah. Andrew Parry, Malcolm Herring, yeah. some really yeah. amazing investors. It must have been fantastic working with them. It was a good stable. Also, I was sort of on the next desk to Chris Binodi, uh, some of the the early hedge fund managers as well. Those who sort of went off to start uh, the Thames River, and um, also some of the the partners who started Sloan Robinson as well. So there were some very smart people there, uh, and that was was a, a very good trading ground. Um, and then uh, we had, you know, the bearings crisis you know, in, in 1995. And that was a, a real learning experience from, from all, you know, all points of view. And I had just gone back to work, um, having had my, my daughter, Eliza. And so I'd just gone back to work. I was there for, for you know, a few months. And then my employer went, went bust. And it was a a huge sort of um, you know lesson from all sorts of, of perspectives, and um, you know one was really that you ha had no idea what was going to happen next in life. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> had forecast that, and uh, so that was quite you know, useful from a you know humility point of view of, of you know how to manage money. 
But there are other lessons as well, you know, that um, were very useful later in, in my career. Um, so, you know, financial leverage, you know, a bank that is over levered doesn't really take much to, to upend it. Uh, that was a very useful lesson, you know, going into the, the financial crisis, um, looking to be able to avoid the, all the, the banks which were, were over leveraged. Uh, importance of, of the, the financial you know, reputation, brand. Um, now, that's obviously important in, in everything, but in, in finance, it's, it's the most important thing. That you know, trust element and brand and, you know, with Bearings being able to just phone up and saying, saying you know, I'm from Bearings, that would open the door. And then the very next day, you know, you are suddenly a, a global laughing stock, you know, just absolute pariah. And, and the idea that anybody would give you money to manage was 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 hilarious. So that was a, a very good you know, learning point. And then I think the third one, which which was from as an investor and an analyst, was the importance of doing your own research, you know, primary research. And not to just, you know, believe what your apparent elders and betters were telling you about a situation. And, and that that is just incredibly important as an investor. And you, you start off, you know, you, you do, you know, assume that other people who've been doing it a long period of time know what they're talking about. But, but you know, they didn't. And, and you know, our, our elders and betters uh, were, were completely and totally blindsided by what had happened. Um, and that was, a, you know, really interesting. And so although it was a, a little bit shocking at the time, um, there were some very useful lessons that came out of it for, for my, my, my career after that, which, which I, I think were a help. It's funny, isn't it? Because I remember around that time talking to um, a former colleague of mine who joined Bearings in the Singapore office. Yeah. And, and actually, I tell a lie, I think he was in the Tokyo office. But he said it was quite commonly known that there was something bizarre happening in Singapore. And he, he couldn't understand why the people in London hadn't asked more questions. Well, I think the, the, the audit were asking the questions, um, but the answers that they were getting back from Neeson uh, were, I think, confused them to some extent. And he was obviously you know, quite a, good at concealing the, 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 you know, the real situation. Um, so I think there were people halfway up who had suspicions that things weren't right, particularly obviously because the amount of cash that was going out um, in that direction uh, for the margin calls. And uh, they had suspicions, but they didn't raise them further up because there was that, well, everything's going fine. You know, it appears to be making a profit. It made all the profit, you know, for that year came mm. from, from, from Singapore. So, so again, there are more and more lessons there and you know, particularly about how you know, the front office and back office should, should and should not be working together. So, so a lot, a lot of a you know case history there. It's funny, isn't it? Because we've seen so many frauds in in our career that, yeah. and each time, you know, when you look back on it, there's something slightly obvious about it. You know, there's all the money's being made in the smallest office in the world. Why, why is it? And why would somebody be be able to do that? And so many times we we see this, and sometimes I think it's more it's easier to spot from outside than it is from from inside. It's, it, it's, it's very funny. So tell me, how did you end up at Allianz? What was the, what was the catalyst that made you leave Bearings? Or did you I, see all I, the... Well, I, I was really looking to um, invest uh, globally, but uh, on a bottom-up basis. 
and uh, I had shifted you know, from doing UK only to, to doing you know, global investing. Uh, Bearings was a very sort of top-down uh, asset manager. And so uh, it was very much, you know, we we like, you know, Hong Kong will allocate money over there and, and invest it there. And I felt increasingly uh, that that was the wrong way to do global investing. If you were going to have a, a concentrated high alpha you know, global portfolio, you needed to have, have um, you know, concentrated stock picking. And therefore, you needed to have start with the stocks. And uh it was obviously the wrong way up at, at bearing. So I looked where else could be uh, that could be done. And at that time, Dresden RCM, uh, as it was, uh, had just uh, started up a, a global research uh, platform. And that was looking at companies across borders so you could um, compare and contrast the you know, Nike and Adidas um, and really look at them on the same basis and compare and contrast and then build concentrated portfolios so that seemed to me to be attractive so that that's you know why I went and and it also there was also um something called grassroots which was looking really sort of deep down non-financial research um into you know products um so you know when the the ipod and the ipad uh came out, then the grassroots would really look and, and see what the response was to these products. And that was really um, very attractive as well. So it was resources, global resources, and the ability to, to build portfolios in that way was, was very attractive. It's very interesting, the grassroots idea, where they were looking at product design and product and market research as to how the products were being received. Now, how did that help you in uh, investing decisions? Well, it really, the risk in investing is, is, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're investing in. And so the more that you can, you know, reduce that thicket of ignorance, um, the better. And uh, so being able to really understand what the you know, customer responses are to the products and services of the companies that you're investing in does, does you know, reduce that, that risk around it. Now, you can never know everything um, and there has to be a point where you then stop and say okay we well, need, need to make a decision about this and as I say from my bearings experience you never know what's going to happen next so yeah, it course. is a question of 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 just you know having enough information and understanding to take a view and and the ability to go right down on the ground so you know talk to oncologists if you're investing in a you know a cancer drug um or talk to cardiologists if you're investing in a stent you know this kind of thing that you can do um really does does help um when you are understanding what you're investing in and getting all those different perspectives you know around the company from you know from different different people um and stakeholders that's very very important uh, so, so I found it extremely useful. When you had the resource like that, did that mean that you didn't need to use things like expert networks because you had it, like your own internal expert network? Was that was that the way to think about it? Or yes, it was internal expert network, but we did use external expert networks too. Um, and then increasingly, as 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 time went on and there more data was available, we used data scraping, um, and then. You know, we would use um, natural language processing, you know, anything that was was uh, going to add to your understanding of of the company that you're investing in, its products and services um, and its market. Um, you would use. Why wouldn't you use it? You know, 
and I think that's a, you know there's a often a, a, a sort of real focus on what our internal resources are we must only use and trust these well I think you know you could use whatever's out there and some of the the younger you know analysts and people that we were taking on to the, the team and to the 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 um, research uh, would start with with Google you know they would start with Google work backwards towards the report and accounts they would use the report and accounts as well but they would start in a completely different place and that I really liked you know within my in, uh, investment team is to have those you know diversity of, of backgrounds but also diversity of, of the way of thinking and the way of approaching an investment and and that you know gives a much better you know discussion when you're talking about um, you know, a particular investment, because you've got people coming from all different, you know, places, um, and and putting different emphasis on on different parts of of the resources that that are there. But you know, when when we think about you know our careers and you know the thirty years, you know what's happened. I think technology has been you know, the biggest change um, that's that's happened over that period. And you know, remembering going off to to the Department of Trade and Industry with a, a huge brick of a cell phone to to phone back when the when the trade figures came out, you know that that sort of you know where we started, and then and then the internet you know appeared, and suddenly there was this absolute light bulb of this is going to be extraordinary for investors because you're going to get access to all of this different sort of information. Um, and then um, working out, you know, as, as you go through, well, how are you going to deal with all this information? Because not all of it is, is equally valuable. Um, and these are the skills which the young people now coming through are, are you know, having and, and, and using a lot more, uh, the ability to, to analyze you know, data um, and to, to filter what's important. Because for an investor, you, know, you have limited time and uh, you need to to really be able to focus on what's important. And the more there is out there, the more difficult that task is, which is where you absolutely have to have the technology. And the other useful thing, actually, from, from Bearings was the fact that the economics unit was also the quant unit because the economists could add up. And therefore, you know, they were the first people to have the computers. And therefore, um, I had, right from the beginning of my, my career, was using, you know, quant and um, using quant for filtering and, and um, understanding, you know, how it could be used. And so I never had that sort of, you know, conflict that fundamental investors occasionally have with quant because I'd always used it and always see the point of it. Um, and that's obviously been the other big, big change related to technology which happened during our career is, is the, the rise of passive. And that is still... Um, having a very big impact on the whole industry and will continue to do so. Um, and it's sort of different ways of, of, of getting to a, a very similar sort of result. Now, as an active investor, um, I always you know, found it, it's, um, it's, it's a, a challenge, but it's not a challenge you mind having because it's, you know, it really makes people focus on the active part of, of what you're doing. And so it, it, that always seemed to me to be quite a positive thing because as a you know, very active investor, because we had um, you know, portfolios which were 90% active, um, 30, uh, 30 stock uh, global portfolios, they were extremely active. Um, so it sort of highlighted what you were doing was actually different um, to passive. And so there was no index hugging going on. Um, 
And I think that that passive trend is going to continue because in in many asset classes it is is it produces better results and cheaper. Um, not all, and in global, the um, median managers still outperform. So it still makes sense to be active in global. It makes sense to be active in emerging markets, uh, in smaller companies, and in some some uh, times during you know mar a market, the active managers will find it you know best to do. But but there are large swathes of of equity markets where passive does as as well, if not better, than active. It's funny, you were just taking me back to my first day when I started at Horgavet, the stockbroker, and I was shown to my desk and I turned around to my boss, the Bob Cowell, who founded Mickinson Cowell, investor yeah. relations firm. Um, I'd said to Bob, I said, um, is it possible, could I have a computer, please? And he turned around to me and he said, do you know how to work a computer? I said, Yes. And he said, well, what kind of computer would you like? And when I tell that story to young people coming into the industry now, they can, I mean, they can't conceive of a world without computers. No, and it's, it's they, funny. They, they, I mean, they hardly ever use the word, I don't think they do. They, they uh, never call it a computer. Yeah, no, exactly. But I remember. So you were very lucky because you must have been quite advanced to have a computer on your desk. Well, I was just in the right place. Um, that's yeah. where, where the computers were. Um, although <laughs> it has to be said that the the you know some of the products which the quants were producing at those times were experimental and didn't necessarily <laughs> do do what they were meant to be doing. So, so the portfolio insurance, for instance, during the the um, the crash in in eighty seven was uh, was not not entirely successful. Um, but that's what happens, you know, at, at an early stage of an experimenting of, of seeing, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and uh, I think, you know, watching and seeing how quant is is, is used now. Um, and, you know, there are still, you know, many products which just, you know, fail because they are based on, on the wrong assumptions and so you you still need you know, a lot of sense in there as well and and even now when computers and and uh, you know ai is 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 uh, so so uh, intelligent it still uh, gets things wrong and there's still basic things where humans can can add a little bit of value and and i think we're still still you know there's some point in still having a few humans in, involved in in the exercise of, of fund management particularly <laughs> while while companies themselves are still managed by humans then um you know and the end uh, clients are still humans then you need a few people um involved with that that sort of trust element to work we always need people to work the computers i i feel so i feel i feel quite safe but tell me, when you, you started in the economics department, has that coloured your attitude to macro? What, what part does macro play in your thought process and in your investing process? And do you think that has been coloured by your experience, good or bad, by starting out working in the economics area? I think um, it really proved, you know, to me, that uh, you know, rather like the bearings experience is that that nobody really knows what's going on and in the future and so so huge uh, you know incredibly complex models uh, you know econometric models are, are produced um, and and fiddle around with and and they never actually tell anybody what's going to happen next and you know they give a, a sort of a, a an intelligent guess 
of of you know how things might work. Um, but but you know, as we all know, the world is is so much more complex than any of these models, and and it's involved with people, you know, who who do all sorts of bizarre things. And I think you know the LTCM was a, a very good example, you know, of that, where you had these brilliant uh, people, these you know academics who started up their hedge fund, and and uh, they sort of failed to to really put into the equation that that um, you know when they themselves became you know part of the reality, actually changed the dynamics of what was going on in the market because they had this this sort of incredible impact on on you know how how people um would behave and so they failed to to really see that and then they failed to see how um many of the assets would actually work together because these things change you know correlations change through time so um i think that was a really interesting you know example of 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 uh, how things can can go wrong and how how even the most brilliant people have, have very little idea about how things are going to work in practice. That was another issue of leverage as well, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that was yeah. a real problem yeah. with LTCM. It's funny, I mean, the 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 fact that they they use such extraordinary levels of leverage without any of these brilliant people questioning it. Is I suppose it's a classic example of groupthink, where there isn't somebody standing back and asking, "Well, are we doing the right thing?" How did you manage to and hubris as well? Yeah, well, <laughs> but um, but that that groupthink is very difficult in a large asset management organization, isn't it? I mean, how how did you handle that sort of thing at Allianz? Uh, in- Increasing diversity wherever possible, and I think that's something which has not changed enough in in our times. You know, in in the city over that sort of you know thirty year period, um, that I think the, there's more diversity of, of nationality than there was when I started. You know, when I started, it was very very English male. You know, there was a sort of a public school. You know, and then there were traders. You know, and that was that was it. Um, there are a few women sort of, you know, lurking around, some in, in, in senior positions, um, but but not not many at all. Um, and uh, that's, yeah, there's, there's different nationalities now, but then the percentage of women manage, managing money um, is exactly the same as it was when I started, which is... is oh, really? Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't changed. <laughs> it hasn't changed. So all of the... All of the, you know, the efforts that have been made, um, that the funds globally are still, um, it's under 10% managed by women. And why do you think that project, is? Well, uh, there are many, many reasons um, why it is. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, systematic that... Um, it's just uh, the women come into the into the system and they start um, start off well. So if you look at the CFA, um, there's there's a quite a decent chamber split there, um, but they uh, get to manage some some small funds, and it doesn't get much further. And that's still that's still the case. Now, uh, quite a lot is being done now to to change it um, and I think things like um, having a 
um, a policy of, of more systematic hiring makes a big difference. So, so what we found made a difference was when you made the decisions about hiring, about promoting, and also about you know about um, you know shifting people on. If you made those more systematic and got a, a broader group of people making the decisions, that shifted the needle. And so I think it goes back to the fact that decisions historically being made about you know, who was hired, who was promoted to manage the money, um, who was uh, given more money to manage. You know, these were made by too few people and the people and they weren't sort of diverse people. So if you get diverse groups of people making these de important decisions, then you get different outcomes. And that was a, a real sort of learning of the process was that um, that's the only way you can shift it because historically, you know, the decisions have been made about who would get a bigger fund, you know, who would have you know more money coming in were made by very, very few people and they would give them to people that they themselves felt comfortable with and they didn't tend to be different from themselves. But surely this is exactly the environment in which the the money talks you know the performance talks so not you know, it, not not absolutely because um it should do and um uh, over time performance does make that is is you know the big determinant but if you look at at women uh, managing funds uh, with similar performance to men and this, I think Citywide did this analysis um, that the um, men would have more money to manage than the women for the same performance. Something to do with the fact also that, you know, that the men are more successful in raising funds. So, so the women are equally, you know, when you look at all the stats, the women are equally um, capable of producing performance, but they, they don't seem to raise as much money as the men do for mm. the same performance. And that's the real... You know, that's a real important thing. So, so at the end of the day, you know, when you go out, you know, marketing, and that's also because of the, the, the gender issues there in the intermediaries as well. So the who makes the decisions on who manages the money in the first place, who makes the decisions on who gives more money, and, and it, so it's, it's carried on. Anyway, I, I am more optimistic of, of, of a change now um, because there's more focus on it. And um, there's you know, more focus with the diversity project. There's more focus you know, through um, the various um, the ESG um, that is is part of everybody's investment process themselves. They can no longer go along to you know, to asset owners um, and talk about uh, ESG if they themselves haven't got some diversity there as well. And also, mm. if they're asking for companies to be more diverse then then you know if you just have um a group of people coming along from a farm management com um, you know company who look all exactly the same then that doesn't you know really bode very well for them being able to persuade companies to be more diverse so i i think it will shift um and more systematic decision making through the promotion process who gets the money um who gets more money to run who is allocated money i think um it it should it should shift uh, but it's taken a very, very long time. The the data shows that a mixed team of gender, you know, is is um, makes sense and adds adds value, uh, which yeah. does that. That sort of you know seems to make sense, doesn't it?
Yeah, no, and and it's not just mixed in gender. I mean, it's mixed in backgrounds and experiences. Yeah. Makes a, I mean, makes an enormous difference. It's been interesting moving on to training, and I've been very interested to observe how different firms work. So when I when I go in to do my forensic academy course, I kick off with an exercise, and you see immediately how the business is organized and how the people work together because some firms they will they'll start all talking as a group some firms there'll be two or three people will work together some firms will all do it individually and the thing I, I've found really um, telling is where you've got the most senior person in the room what they what they say or do and the re- you know the re- really effective investors I've been doing the course with you almost don't hear them because they're pushing the younger people to speak mm. first yeah. and not to be not to be scared of voicing their opinion and that, that is in, incredibly important at this point and I think culturally um having a uh, an environment where as a as a leader and as, as a boss, you just sort of take that hat off when you go into the discussions about an investment is extremely important. And um, being able to do that and and enhance the the debate and then the final decision is is very important. One thing that we found very useful uh, was something that 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 uh, that I introduced after reading a book uh, called How We Decide by someone called Joe Malera. I think it was taken out of print. Yeah. But uh, it suggested that um, having voting, if you're going to be voting as a team, if you took it uh, so it was blind, so nobody knew how anybody else was voting, you got a better outcome. And so I yeah. thought, well, let's let's give that a go. And that that's that's what we did. And it really did have a huge impact. And it was because of that factor of 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 people being aware of of the boss, you know, and, 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 and how are they voting? But not just that, it was also a bit of give and take in the different votes. So, you know, if I support you on this stock, then maybe, you know, you can, when I bring my idea up, then you'll support me. And, it, and a lot of it is, is unconscious. People only know they're doing it, but they are. And so they're making these trade-offs. So they're not actually really thinking, you know, me, myself, what do I think about this stock? And that's one way of avoiding this group think, you know, that, that you were saying it is, is getting everybody to think, you know, get all of the, that discussion and debate done. And then everyone go back and just on their own think, do I want you know, this to buy this stock myself today? Um, and then you get that good mix of, of the you know, left, right brain um, and the old, you know, the, the Kahneman sort of, you know, thinking um, of how the best way to decide, you know, using your experience, but also the, you know, the logic. And, and that, I think, works well. And the other thing I found was that um, it's, there are some, you know, when you're presenting a stock idea or a, you know, an investment, um, it's, easier for people to agree to a, the rational you know, case. And so the, the logic of a, of a case, uh, people can agree to because they think, well, I can explain you know, why that is. But if they're having to explain their gut, they feel much more uncomfortable about that. 
So, so that's why the individual decision making it makes sense, and then you put that together, you collate it together, because people listen to that. They should listen to their gut, particularly when they are, you know, experienced and their gut's been doing a lot of work over the years. Then they should listen to it. Um, but you've got to balance that up, and you can do that if you're, you know, by yourself thinking and then, you know, deciding. It's much more difficult to do that in a group. Because you're saying, well, you know, I feel this is the right thing to do, and everybody goes, okay. You know, uh, whereas the, the logical part is very easy to explain to everybody. So, um, so I, I thought that was was helpful too in 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 when you're making a decision. And when you introduced that kind of blind voting, how did it shift the the balance? Because I imagine that previously you'd have bought something, and four out of five people were three out of four people who've been in favour of it. Did you go much closer back towards 50-50 or 60-40 when people didn't know how other people had voted? Was there was there more division within the team or did it not change that much? You got, you got more um, dispersion of, of votes um, and that was the idea. Um, but it, it never, you never sort of stopped there when you just did the vote because if people disagreed with something, then you'd want to know why. And then that could lead back into the, the discussion again, because often again, it, it's sort of you, it's only when you get away from something, you think about it yourself and you think, I understand that. I think I've got to ask that question again. I don't feel comfortable enough with it. Whereas in, if you're all sitting in a room together, people might not feel comfortable enough to actually say that. Now in a good group that's been working together, a good team that's working together for a long time, one would hope that they, they would feel comfortable enough. But even so, you know, there are you know things that people don't necessarily want to, to share, things they don't understand. And so it's good to be able to get away and then think about it and then go back in again, because you'll probably find that somebody else didn't understand it either um, and just didn't, you know, feel very, very brave about saying so. No, it's, all, it's always embarrassing to admit uh, a lack of knowledge. And people find, I think, find that in, incredibly, incredibly difficult. And, I mean, have you got any Somebody advice? <laughs> Have you got any sort of advice on for younger people who are perhaps more junior members of a team as to how to be better at contributing to that process if you don't have a blind vote and you don't have a more understanding leader who's stepping back and not leading the debate? What what would you do if you were a young analyst today to make your view heard and to make play a bigger contribution in these sorts of teams find a good boss i think is is one thing which i i actually say to all young people is if, if just get your get your a good boss when you start because that's going to make a huge difference you know if you if you're in a in a situation where you have a boss who will not listen to you and and just you know discounts what you say or or sort of you know ridicules what you say at the worst then if you can find yourself in a, a different just find yourself somewhere else to be frankly because you're, you're you know it, it's it's just too much like hard work um i think there are you can always um find your way around to find other mentors if you're you know you, if your own particular you know, boss is not particularly helpful find other mentors um around who will who will then intercede for you help help you um and and obviously you know work with your other senior teammates network um the people who i've i've you know, seen really, really work in the organisations, network furiously um, with their peers, um, interact, um, you know, 
ask questions and and technology really allows you to do that as well so so the sort of the social networks that we we use internal and external in organizations allow you to really reach out to people um even if you you know you've never met them um there's a certain amount of information about you on these networks which allows someone to be happy to take a, you know a call with you and uh, so you should use it and just just network furiously um, with good people, obviously. Yeah, it's funny. Um, people are very approachable. I just did a podcast last week with um, a, a young man in Toronto, and we were going back and forward about times, and he was very difficult on the times. And I said, well, you know, why? What, what's the problem? And he said, oh, I won't be home from school then. And he was... He's actually just turned. Um, he's just actually just turned seventeen, but the the it's amazing how much um, how willing people are. I think today to help and to 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 respond. And my message to anybody is, if you, you know, if you're a sixteen and doing a podcast, don't be scared to reach out to people. No, one thing, no, I which, and I think they are they are better at it. I think younger generation are pretty good about about sort of you know, reaching out. And actually, you're unusual because you're quite good at using the networks. <clears throat> um, you're quite unusual for someone in your position, but being very um, visible on things like LinkedIn. <coughs> I'd be interested if you, I mean, did you get any benefit from doing that? Or was there it just part of the marketing for the investment trust? Or why did you, why, why did you do it? Because it must, must have taken you time because you're good at doing it. Well, well, thank you, Steve. Um, I uh, started well, started doing media. Um, it was just um, I was asked by Bloomberg to to do it, and this was was uh, I don't know, fifteen years ago. Something very few people were were, were um, doing it from at, at Allianz. It was it was quite unusual, and um, I thought, well, I'll give it a go. Absolutely terrifying at first. You do live television. I mean, you know, nothing else is more frightening than that. And uh, so I found it was a quite a good skill to be able to have because um, you needed to be able to answer anything. And that was quite helpful for the client meetings as well, where, where you'd get all sorts of, of questions coming at you, sometimes you know, quite bizarre, uh, but you would need to be able to, to, to answer. So, so from that, I found that quite useful. And then that sort of led on to other you know, social networks. So let, let's change tack because... You managed the Brunner Trust, and the Brunner yeah. Trust had, I think, 48 years, anyway, nearly 50 years of dividend growth. And I'm just interested in understanding what you think about dividends, what you think about, what the challenges in running a trust where <laughs> if you if a dividend doesn't grow, everybody's going to be very, very upset. And just, you know, dividends more generally as a component of total return. How, how important are they to you? And what tricks or tips do you have, can you share, in how we should look at them? Well, as a, as a you know, end investor, uh, dividends are a very nice thing to have. And certainly from um, the, the Brunner um, you know, investors' 
they really liked the you know having the dividend and, and we made it quarterly so that it could be a real part of, of income and you know with no income really available anywhere else from any other assets then the income from from equities became that much more important um and um so from that perspective i think the certainly something which is appreciated by by the investors um running the trusts you know, with the dividend it was it's not that difficult because of the the level of reserves and so um you know the lovely thing about investment trusts is is so many of them have have, have good reserves because they've been around for such a long time um and so there was over a year and a half of of reserves which was there if it was ever needed it wasn't needed very often um um, but that was there um, to 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 help you know, support that growth. Now, not you know all trusts have that, um, and so, so there's a a little bit more pressure on the the underlying portfolio to to deliver in that situation. But for Brunner, it was it was relatively comfortable. For for the other funds that I I ran, um, most of them um, dividend wasn't really an issue. Um, because they were, you know, running a, a capital, you know, outperformance um, really was was the 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 objective, and therefore it was all about you know outperforming your index, and the you know, the dividend wasn't a big part of that. I mean, the dividend, as we know, makes a big you know, contribution to the return over a long period of time, but over the one three years that we tended to be measured, um, the dividend was not a big part of it um, and so so it didn't tend to be a big a big focus i think the interesting thing that happened over the the time that i was managing the funds though was that the dividends started to come out from different places and so you know, historically it would have been very much in the the more mature parts of the market and financials utilities you'd find decent yields um, but then increasingly over time it started to you know, the tech sector started to produce some some dividends, um, and uh, Microsoft, uh, Apple, would um, you know start to produce some dividends, and the cash was there to to keep that coming. And so I think that gave a different perspective just to investing in some of those areas too. Yeah, I've always been. Um, I always thought it was quite funny. I, I had a client who said he liked companies that pay, had a high dividend payout because it stopped the management doing anything too stupid, yeah. which I always yeah. thought was quite a, was quite an amusing um, thing about it. But I always get slightly concerned when people um, express valuations in the form of dividend yield, because that seems to me an in, incredibly dangerous um, way of looking at it. I've always liked the idea of a company with quite a low starting dividend yield but you had growth because yeah. i always thought that beats something with it doesn't always of course but given the choice i would rather buy something that was growing and grew its dividend because over time i would end up with a with a better income you um you wrote an article for one of the financial magazines a few years ago which talked about your investment philosophy and it said um Managing an investment portfolio requires strong, fundamentally-based conviction, balanced exposure, and valuation discipline, which I thought was a great um, summary. But can we just talk about this? I mean, when you say strong, fundamentally-based conviction, what what does that mean? How does that manifest itself in practice? Yeah, well, going back to, to you know what we we're talking about, um, 
getting good research, uh, having the resources to do that research um, globally, making those comparisons, and then having you know some some non-financial on the ground, um, really checking that that your models are based on reality. Um, that's what I mean by by you know the fundamentals, and um, so you make your decisions based on on really good research, as good as you can get. So that's that part of it. I diversification well, making sure that that you know your portfolio is not all based on one or two, you know macro, um, uh, uh, you know forecasts. And you did ask earlier actually about my my view about you know economists and and uh, you know coming from there. And you said that most of these these models don't come out with anything that that bears any resemblance to reality. In the end, um, I think your portfolio uh, has a lot better chance of being diversified from from the corporate point of view because companies are very different to each other uh, even in the same industry they could be be very different to each other and um, so you get very good diversification by by putting these different companies together and making sure when you do look at the uh, outcome at the the performance and the attribution that that is really doing what you say it would do. So so whenever we had you know good performance coming out of the portfolio, you'd want to see it was coming out of a number of different places. So so a healthcare company over here, you know, a Chinese internet company over there, um, uh, European industrial over there, and all you know different sources of alpha, not all correlated. Um, and that's really what you want to produce because that's what you can do in equity markets. It's the wonderful thing about equities is you get that incredible diversity um, within um, of, of, of uh, industry, but also country, but then business model and management. You know. All of these things can can really spread your risk. I mean, you mentioned earlier. I think 30, 30 stocks global diversified. Why do you think more people don't adopt that more concentrated model? Because people like Terry Smith have been, you know, demonstrated very very good success. You've been very successful with a model like that. I mean, do you think thirty is the ideal number and? Why do you think there are still portfolios around that are so so much more diverse than that? And what do you think you miss out on by having the the concentration? Is there any? Do you miss out on anything? You um, you can manage global um, money in different ways. Um, obviously, more more concentration has been coming through in the last say say ten years. So when we look at the you know competitors that we had, they were doing very well. Um, a lot of them were more concentrated, so I think it was it was sort of going that way. Um, now there's still among more quant based funds, they tend to be you know a broader um, you know more more stocks. Um, and if you are picking up a lot of smaller companies, then you can still get a decent amount of both diversification and also produce some alpha. Um, but if you have 200 stocks that are sort of mid to large, um, then you're going to be closer and closer to the index, more difficult to, to really generate alpha out of it. So it, it depends what your stocks are, but that trend towards concentration seemed to be happening. Um, now, obviously, the more active your fund is, the better you 
got to be because mm. you know you can't afford many mistakes in a in a portfolio that that's concentrated and so i think the trend towards you know quality investing which has happened over the last few years as well is is related to that so you've got to be absolutely sure about the quality of the businesses that you're investing in the quality returns um the you know resilience of the business model the um track record of the management and their capital allocation, all of these things. Plus now, you know, ESG as well as integrated as part of that, you know, looking at the quality and sustainability of the business. These things are more important because if you only have 30 stocks in there, you can't afford one blowing up. Tell us about your uh, your approach to ESG. What, because you've got quite an interesting approach to it and it's not one that involves labels. Just can you just spend two minutes explaining yeah, uh, it was very fortunate um, to be at, at Allianz, um, you know, for, for 19 years when uh, Allianz was was really quite early uh, with you know, trending towards um, you know, sustainability and an early uh, signatory of the, the UNPRI. Um, and we had sustainability analysts, you know, working with us, you know, all, all of that time. And within my team, uh, we were running the sustainability funds uh, for uh, all of the period that I was there. And it started off as, as a really quite a, a niche activity, shall we say. And uh, the ESG sustainability analysts were not taken particularly seriously um, internally or, or I think for the industry as a whole. So it was a sort of interesting niche activity that no one really expected to generate too much alpha. Uh, but it was um, a different way of looking at things. Now, so it started off sort of in, in that that kind of space. But as time went on, um, you know, more and more of these issues were, were, were you know, coming up in uh, the corporate, um, the meetings that, that we had and uh, beginning to, to have more resonance. And I think the big watershed, I think, was, was the, the, the financial crisis. So through that and coming out the other side, um, people really begin, you know, began to think more seriously about some of these issues. And so from, from being a bit fringe, it became much more central. And for us, um, we had been running the sustainability funds um, and we've been able to see that there, there wasn't much difference at all in the outcomes of the performance between sustainability funds and our more broad funds. And so we started just to integrate these issues into the research process for all of our global funds very early on. Um, and so because we had the experience they, within the team, they, they would be we, we discussing the issues early at the early stage um, when we were talking about the stocks. And so whether it was, um, you know, climate issues, uh, governance, which would come into a whole, you know, quality um, or, you know, whether it was more social issues, which really rose as well, more with, with the rise of, of, you know, social media and, and um, the, the availability of information on some of these issues um, was, was there. So it was very, very integrated in, into to what we did. And... Um, I think the interesting thing now is is the availability of data uh, and the increasing quality of data for for these factors, and having seen now and that that you can enhance performance 
not just match performance from non-EDSG portfolios, but you can enhance it through the use of these. And you can see that in how some of these factors are starting to, to outperform. And that's been, really been the, the, the big journey over the last few years is, is, is that shift from fringe activity um, to, to really absolutely mainstream. And the, nobody is, is now saying that they're not doing it. It's just a question of how people are doing it. And now the next thing is obviously impact. And, and so going from you know, not doing harm to actually doing good and from you know, personally now, the you know, personal investing that I'm doing um, is, is, is sort of led by what can the social impact be and can you make money out of it? You know? So those two things now are, are now being, you, know, you can measure more what social impact of, of investors, uh, investments are, but it's also you can really you know, do good and make money which is, is, I think, what more people want to do. Absolutely. Is your approach now, when you're managing your own money, is it very different from the way you managed other people's money when you were doing it professionally for a living? Well, it's it's uh, a lot more relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously, um, you know, from a performance point of view, one doesn't really care about relative performance oneself sure and and uh as a professional investor that's that's how you measured you know is still um it's it's in a, a relative basis but but personally you know most people don't really mind too much what the index is doing um so it's much more absolute so that that's a big difference and i think as we've been through a period of very very strongly rising markets because of the uh, you know free money which is the other big change that that's happened over the, the thirty years is is the fact that 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 money is now practically free. Then I think there will probably be as we get into to a period where where you're starting to put a price on money again, and then that will be you know, asset markets will be a little bit uh, less one way. Then you know people will focus again. I think a bit more on on absolute. Um, and and you know money will be lost as well as as made and that's not been very easy to do over the last few years um, losing money it's been shooting fish in a barrel really um, so so you, people had to focus on a relative performance because everything's been going up but as things are getting a little bit more sideways then the absolute suddenly becomes more important. Is it as you said in that article extreme valuation plus a rising discount rate can be a dangerous combination. And yeah. I suspect that's exactly the environment that we're facing and and it will be a much more difficult um, navigation. Not that it's been, I mean, it's been easy in absolute terms, but it's been extraordinarily difficult in relative terms, I think, for for most fund managers, because you've been through this terribly volatile and terribly difficult period with, with COVID. And um, I did a a course today, a valuation course. And, you know, somebody asked me, said, well, you know, what are we going to do? Because all the valuations are stupid. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I, you know, I've got a lot of sympathy with people that are, that are managing money professionally because I think it, it, it's really, really hard right now. Although the stock markets are going up and you're making money, it's hard to, it's hard to beat the, the benchmark, isn't it? Yeah. I to beat be the benchmark, I think you know over time for a long a long period uh, to yeah. be to be you know, driver performance uh, 
for for quarter after quarter, year after year, um, which is is you know what what we do and what we've done. Um, that that is it's a tough thing to do. And uh, and when you look back over you know long periods of time, there are not that many um, firms and and teams that have managed to do that. Um, and certainly, you know, consistently over time. And so it is. It is a tough thing to do. And so, so when you find people who do seem to be able to do it over over a long period of time, you should you should stick with them. No, absolutely. And it's funny how how they come with very very different recipes. You know, they come yeah. um, approach it very very differently. Lucy, you you mentioned that you worked with a, a group of people who ended up with some of the biggest and most successful hedge funds around. Did you ever think about doing long short? Is it just not appeal to you? We had had a, a, a little go at it actually, just um, to experiment. Um, and I really thought it was a very interesting experiment because thinking about shorting uh, was a very good sort of feeding back into your long only discussions. You know, if you're looking at, at the stock, because if you're sort of screening the stocks and they they come up as a short, but it happens to be one of your longs, it's a really good question about why are we thinking about this differently. Um, but I never felt that shorting was my thing, and and I always felt shorting was a shorter term activity um, than than long investing. It's a, it's shorting is is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, we say that that you know outperforming over a long period of time is quite difficult. Well, shorting and, and adding value to shorting is even more difficult, particularly, obviously, in the markets that we've had where everything has been going up because of free money. But even without that, you've always got the events which, which um, you know, catch people out. Um, and you've got that sort of unlimited, you know, upside downside. And so for me, I, I always, you know, having experimented with it, um, and obviously, you know, at times being encouraged to go and do it, I never felt that it was my thing. And I was always more interested in long term investing and, and you know, thinking as far ahead as one could, uh, being very humble about the fact that one probably didn't know what was going to happen. But investing at companies which seemed to be doing, you know, on top of of, of the, their industry at the, and and uh, producing goods and services that that people liked that seemed to work and uh, managing themselves in a way for the you know for the long term, and that was always what attracted me about investing uh, was being able to participate in in some of those those sort of great successes um, and um, rather than trying to be too cute about short term valuation. And as you, no, you know, I, said, you know, you know that that so so that for me was always the attraction, and still is. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. I mean, shorting is just so difficult, so stressful, and psychologically incredibly different. I mean, funnily enough, I, I've now become very friendly with some of the big uh, U.S. Um, active shorting firms, and. Um, they have a very different outlook on life, and it's a very it's, it's it's been fascinating because I've been involved in looking at various frauds and so on, and um, but very very stressful. Yeah. Listen, uh, thank you so much for 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 doing this. I should have sort of um, said to you in advance, and I just thought about it before we came on. Um, I should close with um, some questions, and I just wondered. 
Do you have a favorite book or a, a favorite genre that uh, that you would recommend to people? Well, there was one, a very good one written last year by um, someone called, I can't remember the name, but Smart Money Method it was called. Oh, don't start that. And look, if you were starting out in the industry, yeah. what book or practice or training would you recommend to somebody that was that was coming into the industry now is there well there are i mean there are a couple of books that i found really really helpful. i think the, the daniel kahneman would talk about thinking you know fast and slow that you know, the behavioral understanding how you yourself make a decision how people make decisions and, and how you know a group of make decisions i think that's really important as an investor so knowing yourself but knowing the other people you're working with and how how you make those decisions which we talked about quite a lot i think that's i would definitely make sure that i really you know understood that um one i found really useful as well was um against the gods by peter bernstein and um that's really the history of risk and you know humans and risk and for investing, you know, all it's all about you know, measuring, assessing risk, and sure. uh, that I found a really useful book. So I'd I'd recommend that as well. And he also sort of comes to the you know the, the conclusion that so people know what's going to happen, but you you have to be really think um, you know in scenarios about what's about the future and and try and weight those scenarios sensibly. So I think that's uh, that's useful as well. So those 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 are the sort of things that I would I would point towards. Brilliant. Well, that's a fantastic um, recommendation, and thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure as ever talking to you, and thank you for all that useful and good advice. Absolute pleasure. I loved how Lucy ended up in finance, playing a piano in a bar, and the stockbrokers seemed to be having fun. And I thought the lessons she drew from the collapse of bearings were spot on. I really enjoyed talking to her and I learned a lot and I hope you did too. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast on your favourite hosting service and please leave us a rating on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Clapham and we're on all social media channels. Check out the YouTube channel behind the balance sheet for some great videos with investing tips, accounting red flags and much more. And don't forget, most importantly, we've got a newsletter. Hit the sign up button on behindthebalancesheet.com. You'll get access to our library with lots of free training materials. The newsletter is free and you'll get the inside track on this and on future podcast episodes. Thank you.